0: Today's message comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter two, verses one through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fires? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Last week, I attended a a lunch
1: that was highlighting a ministry here in Jacksonville that rescues women out of sex trafficking. And uh, it, was a, it was a powerful lunch. It was eye-opening of what goes on right here in our backyard. But the most powerful part of the lunch was when a woman who had been rescued out of trafficking stood up and told her story. She told the story of, as a teenager, <clears throat> being wooed into a relationship that led into abuse, that led into oppression, that led into trafficking, years and years of it. It wrecked her life, absolutely wrecked her life, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And yet she stood up in that lunch, dressed nicely, with a glimmer in her eye, praising Jesus for having rescued her out of that. She told the story of how now she's going to school. She's excelling in school. She's pursuing a law degree so that when she gets her law degree, she can help bring justice to other women who find themselves in the same situation. It was a powerful picture of restoration, of a woman's life that went from ashes and being absolutely wrecked to a woman who was now full and flourishing and free with a smile on her face. As I sat there and listened to it, it reminded me that we serve a God who is about restoration, We serve a God who seeks the welfare of his people. He sent someone to seek the welfare of this woman. And as we read here at the end of verse 10 in Nehemiah, he sent Nehemiah to seek the welfare of his people who were in trouble and in shame. We serve a God who restores. That is the story of the scriptures. From start to end, It is a story of restoration. That is what God is doing in the world. That's what God is doing to build his church. That's what God is doing in your life to bring restoration, as the prophet Joel says. And as the Lord says through the prophet Joel, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. That is what God does. He restores. Now the question is, what does that restoration look like? What characterizes God's restoration of our broken lives and of our broken world? We're gonna see it's a costly restoration, it's a powerful restoration, and it is a lavish restoration. Let's begin with the costly restoration. God's call on Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem was costly. Now, how do we know that? Well, the first hint at it comes at the very last sentence of chapter one, when it says that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now, what does that mean? Well, a cupbearer in those days was a person of high influence. It was a a high-ranking person. Why? Because the role of the cupbearer was to serve the king, to serve wine at the king's table and to protect the king. In those days, plots to kill kings, plots to assassinate kings were all over the place. And so the cupbearer had to be a highly trusted person because the cupbearer would bring the wine. And one of the ways that assassinations would happen of kings was to poison the wine. And so the cupbearer would bring the wine to the king and make sure it wasn't poisoned. And sometimes the cupbearer would actually taste the wine first so that if it was poisoned, he would go down and not the king. So this was a position of high influence. This was a position of high trust. Nehemiah was in a place of great comfort. He had a great job. He had a great career. He had great benefits. And yet we see as God places this call on his life that he was willing to leave that comfort and choose discomfort. In fact, the beginning of him choosing discomfort is him walking into the king's presence sad. And you don't walk into the king's presence sad. That's just not what you did. Right? The king's servants were to come in and put the happy face on. It didn't matter what was happening in your life. You walked in with the happy face before the king. But Nehemiah, after four months of prayer and fasting, you realize that from chapter one to the beginning of chapter two, that's four months that he's been praying and mourning and fasting. And God had given him the courage, had given him the strength to walk into the king's presence sad, And of course, the king asks Nehemiah, Nehemiah, why are you sad? This must be sadness of the heart. What's going on? And Nehemiah's response at the end of verse two is, I was very much afraid. Now, why was Nehemiah afraid? Because the king this same king, early on in his reign, had stopped the rebuilding of Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes. He had stopped the rebuilding because he had gotten word and been convinced by others that if Jerusalem got rebuilt, it would be a threat to his authority and to his power. So Nehemiah knew that what he was about to ask was for King Artaxerxes to change his policy to change his policy towards Jerusalem and towards the city. And any kind of ask like that usually doesn't have a good outcome. Now you understand why Nehemiah was afraid. He left what was comfortable. He was willing to lay down what was comfortable to embrace discomfort for the call of God on his life to go back to Jerusalem to his people who were in trouble and who were in shame, who needed restoration. And yet this is the story of the scriptures. This is the story of what we see throughout the Old Testament. God called Abraham, called Abraham to leave his country, to leave his family, to go to a land that was unknown, for Abraham to leave comfort and to to embrace discomfort for the sake of restoration. Or you've got Moses, who held a position of high power in Egypt, who was called to be God's agent to rescue his people out of slavery and out of shame and out of sin. And when you read in Hebrews 11, it says that Moses chose to join and to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the comfort, the wealth, and the pleasure of Egypt. You have the story of Esther. Esther was the queen of Persia. She was in a place of high influence And God called Esther to be about rescuing God's people out of their trouble and shame. And like Nehemiah, it was a call that had great cost associated with it. It meant that she would leave comfort to embrace discomfort. The Old Testament is full of these stories. Here's the problem. Those were all human saviors that were called to rescue God's people, but the rescue was never final. It was never ultimate because God's people would fall back into trouble and shame. All of these human saviors were pointing to the human savior that would come. And not just a human savior, but a divine savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who would leave the comforts of heaven, who would leave the glories of heaven, who would lay aside his comfort to embrace discomfort to bring rescue, to bring restoration to a people in a world that was broken down by sin. And broken down with shame. I don't know that we'll ever understand this side of glory. What it was like for Jesus Christ to leave heaven, to leave perfection, to leave glory, to leave a perfect relationship with his father, to leave that and enter the horrors of this broken world to enter the horrors of the trouble and the shame and the darkness in this world. I don't know that we'll ever quite grasp what that was like for Jesus Christ. The sacrifice it took for him to come down. Why? To seek the welfare of his people. To seek the flourishing of God's children. This may give a hint of it. In September of 1940, told polecki he was a Polish army captain, who was hearing about the concentration camps where the Jews were being exterminated? He, he, he knew, and they knew that, that there was trouble. Something wasn't right with these concentration camps. And so he, volunteer, he volunteered to go inside Auschwitz. And here's how it happened his superiors cooked up this plan where they gave him a false identity card with a Jewish name. And when the Germans came through Warsaw Street to do a regular roundup, he voluntarily, with his identity card being Jewish, false identity, voluntarily was scooped up and arrested and brought to the concentration camp so that he could get on the inside and start to get information out to the Western allies about what was really happening in here. Listen to what he said, Polecki was a husband and he was a father of two. And he later said, I bid farewell to everything I had known on this earth. He became like any other prisoner in the concentration camp. He has subjected himself to despise, he subjected himself to, uh, to beatings, to suffering, to the threats of death. And then this is what he wrote from inside the concentration camp the game I was now playing at Auschwitz was dangerous. In fact, I had gone far beyond what people in the real world would consider dangerous. And he went on to smuggle reports out of what was happening inside Auschwitz to the Western allies so that they were aware of what was happening and something could be done about it. That's maybe just a a tiny hint of what Jesus Christ did when he bid farewell to his family, bid farewell to the Trinity, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit, to come down and and take on the identity of humanness, to become fully human and subject himself in this world to rejection, to hatred, to mockings, to beatings, to floggings, all the way to death on a cross, And he did that to bring restoration to you, to bring restoration to his church, to bring restoration to this world. That the restoration that you enjoy if you're in Christ, which we're gonna get to more of it, is because Jesus Christ left heaven and came to bring redemption and restoration. So the, the restoration of God is a costly restoration But second, it's a powerful restoration. Look at what Nehemiah tells the king in verse three of why he was sad. The city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king says in verse four, what are you requesting? And before Nehemiah speaks, what does he do? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, you couple that with what he says at the end of verse two I was very much afraid. And you understand the gravity of the ask that he is about to make of the king. The impossibility, the implausibility of what he's about to ask the king. He's about to ask this king to reverse his policy. That years, years earlier in this early reign that he had shut down the building project in Jerusalem, why? Because the rebuilding of Jerusalem would be a threat to his authority and power. And so now Nehemiah is gonna say, king, I want you to reverse your policy. There was no benefit to the king of why he would say yes to this. There was no rational reason of why the king would say yes to this. There was no pragmatic reason of why the king would say yes to this. What Nehemiah was about to ask, which is why he was afraid and why he prayed, quick arrow prayer, before he made the ask, is because what he was about to ask was absolutely impossible impossible from any human perspective. And yet we read in Luke 18, Jesus says what is impossible with men is possible with God. So verse six, listen to what the king says. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. It pleased the king, an unbelieving king, a king who didn't know God, a king who didn't worship God, It pleased him to send his trusted cupbearer to be an agent of restoration for God's place, Jerusalem, and his people. It pleased the king. God was using an unbelieving king, a king that didn't know God, to bring about his purposes, to accomplish his restoration of his people who were in trouble and were in shame. And yet this this shouldn't surprise us because the greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, who would come, the greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, accomplished our salvation. But listen how it happened in Acts chapter two, verse 23. Listen to how Jesus' crucifixion is described. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God used evil to accomplish your salvation. God used sin to accomplish your salvation. You know, the Jews, the Romans, and everyone else that was involved in Jesus' crucifixion were rejoicing when he went on the cross because they finally believed that they had gotten rid of this man. They were rejoicing that that finally he was gonna be gone. Little did they know that God was garnering all the forces of evil to accomplish his plan. That that's how powerful God is. I was working as an engineer in Charlotte, North Carolina, and God had begun to work on me and my call to be in the ministry. And it, it started internally, But then externally, things started to happen, and I was invited to lead a six-week mission trip to the Ukraine one summer, and I wanted to go. Problem is, I was a full-time engineer, and you don't take six weeks off of work. Certainly didn't have that vacation. So I sat down with one of the pastors at at my church, and just for advice and counsel, I said, Chris, here's where I'm at. I wanna do it, but I, I mean, six weeks off. And he read to me first or Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He said, Keith, go to your boss, explain the situation, and ask him what he thinks you should do. I said, Chris, let me tell you what he's going to say. He's not a believer. He doesn't care about a six-week mission trip in the Ukraine. He's gonna say, hey, great, glad that you wanna do that, Keith, but we got a job here, you're an engineer. Chris looked at me and said, do you believe that the king's heart, do you believe that the heart of your boss is in the hand of the Lord? I said, oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I believe that. He said, then go do it. So I went and sat down with my boss, not a believer, I explained the situation, explained to him what I wanted to do, and I said, Dave, what do you think I should do? He kind of looked down, and he paused, and he looked up at me. He said, Keith, I think you should go with a smile on his face, and you'll have a job when you get back. And I went, really? He said, yes. Listen, God has every person everything, every square inch of this world at his disposal to do whatever he wants to accomplish his purpose. That that's how powerful God is. Now you say, what's this have to do with restoration? Has everything to do with restoration because it often appears that evil is winning. It often appears that evil's winning. It often appears that darkness and brokenness is overwhelming. Maybe your addiction that has you trapped. Maybe your broken marriage that is crushing you. Maybe your wayward child that has zapped every last fiber of hope in you feels like the world's winning. And yet, 1 John 4, 4 says that he that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That God's restoration is powerful, that he is rebuilding you, that he's restoring you through his son, Jesus Christ, and that he is using everything towards that good. Romans 8, says what God's purpose is in your life, and that is to conform you, transform you, restore you into the image of Jesus Christ. That is God's purpose for your life. That's God's purpose for his church. That's God's purpose for the world. And that he, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, and by that I mean, if you have transferred your trust from yourself to work out your own salvation and try to earn your way to God, if you've transferred your trust from yourself to trusting Jesus that He accomplished your salvation in full for you by living a perfect life and dying the death for you. That if you've trusted Jesus Christ, then God is using everything at His disposal to accomplish that purpose in you. That His restoration is powerful. So, number one, His restoration is costly, number two, it's powerful. And number three, it's a lavish restoration. Look at verse seven. So the king has already agreed in verse six, given Nehemiah permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. Changed his policy. No benefit to himself. Now verse seven. If it pleases the king, Nehemiah says, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. What is Nehemiah asking for here? He's asking for protection and he's asking for provision. Protection on his way back to Jerusalem And provision, once he gets there, provision to actually rebuild the walls of the city. Protection and provision. Now, King Artaxerxes could have said, hey, Nehemiah, you realize I just changed my policy. I just gave you permission to go back to Jerusalem. Isn't that enough? That's a big deal. Isn't that enough? Don't get greedy here. You got to find your own way back. You got to gather your own timber. I, I, hey, you can go do it, but get. No, Nehemiah asked above and beyond. And we learned that the king granted his request. Provision, protection, the abundance of God's provision. And we understand at the end of verse eight, And the king granted me what I asked. Why? Because the good hand of God was upon him. You think about that. Think about protection and provision. Think about the lavishness, the abundance of what God gives Nehemiah for this rebuilding project. It's the same thing God does in his restoration of us. God isn't chintzy in his restoration. He is lavish in his restoration of people. And he is lavish in his restoration of his world. And his restoration is abundant in the same two forms of protection and provision. Protection, right? He protects you. David says it this way. King David speaks in Psalm 23, four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the greater David, Jesus picks up this shepherding imagery in John chapter 10. And he says that, I am the door to the sheep. He's giving shepherd imagery of a shepherd who literally would lay down in the opening to the sheepfold where the sheep stayed. And the shepherd would lay down in the gate, proclaiming something very powerful to an animal or a thief or a robber who would try to come and harm or hurt the sheep. And that message was, over my dead body, will you hurt my sheep? Jesus was saying, over my dead body, will you hurt my children? He goes on later in John 10 to say, no one can snatch them out of my hand. I protect my people. I protect God's children. Now, that doesn't mean that that evil will never touch you. It means that evil will never destroy you. And that if evil does touch you, It first passes through the good hand of God. you hear that? The good hand of God who has committed in Christ to bring about your restoration into the image of Christ so that you can be confident if evil or brokenness has touched your life, it has first passed through the good hand of God. Meaning that God is using that brokenness, that evil, as part of restoring you into the image of Christ. Now, that can be hard to grasp, especially when you have been touched by intense evil. But in Christ, that is the truth. That God protects you. That Jesus protects you. And that if anything touches your life, it has first come through the sovereign hand of God, the good hand of God. So lavish restoration is in the form of protection, but second, it's in the form of provision, right? Remember, Nehemiah gets everything he needs from the king's forests. This unbelieving king who doesn't know God gives Nehemiah everything he needs to rebuild Jerusalem. And when he gets back to Jerusalem and God's people, as we're gonna see, start to build, right? They're given all the resources, all the resources for rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem. And the same is true for you, that God's abundant provision is more than abundant. It's lavish. Listen to what 2 Peter 1.3 says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. God's power has given you everything you need to be partakers of the divine nature, to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He's given you everything. And that everything I'll put in three categories. He's given you his word. The word became flesh. Christ is the word. He's given you the word. When you engage in the word, you engage with Jesus Christ. He's given you prayer. He's given you prayer. Jesus Christ is the one that takes your prayers, intercedes for you, brings them to the Father so that you can have constant access with the Father. He's given you his word, he's given you prayer, and he's given you fellowship. He's given you the community, the body of Christ. He's given you all of this, that you would be restored. And when you engage in the word and you engage in prayer and you engage in community, change happens. Restoration happens. Those rhythms, right? We call them the means of grace. That simply means it's way God's grace that brings transformation and restoration comes through those avenues of the word and of prayer and of community and fellowship, including corporate worship like this and the sacraments. When you give yourself to those things, he, he gives them in abundance for you to be transformed, for you to be restored. God's restoration is great costly, it is powerful, and it is lavish, which simply means it's over the top. My sister's in-laws live in North Augusta, South Carolina, and they live on this house on a hill. It's called Poverty Hill, and this is a house that was standing during the Civil War. And so when you look back at the historical diaries uh, of of this house, you read these stories of the soldiers marching through and stopping at this house and and getting rest and lodging. And even there was some fighting that went on. Well, my sister's in-laws have renovated the house. They've restored it. And it is absolutely beautiful and it is stunning. But during the renovation, they chose to keep some of the original beams in the house. And so some of these beams have, you know, a bullet embedded in it and an old peg, you know, when they used to build that way with pegs. You say, why? Why did they, why did they keep this old beam? Same reason that when you think about all kinds of renovation projects that go on, why do a lot of renovation projects of a place keep something from the original? right, an old brick maybe that's discolored and tattered and chipped that's in the wall or a charred piece of wood from when the, when the place was destroyed by fire or maybe you see the, uh, the, the part of the wall where they kept the, the watermark, right, from the flood that ravaged the original place that's been rebuilt, that's been restored. Why do we do that? Because those scars enhance the beauty of the restoration. Those scars make the, the restoration that much more beautiful because you're reminded of what happened and why it needed to be restored. You know, that's even true with our Lord Jesus Christ, that his resurrected, beautiful, glorified body still has scars from the crucifixion. We learned that when he appears to Thomas after he had risen from the dead, after he was in his glorified body, he showed Thomas the scars. Why? Because those scars enhance the restoration. Every one of you has scars in your life. Every one of us has a past. Every one of you has scars. Some of you right now have open wounds that will become scars. And the beauty of God's restoration, right, those scars only enhance the beauty of what he is doing to restore you partially now and what he is doing to restore you fully in the new heavens and the new earth. The scars enhance the beauty of what God has done and is doing to restore you in Jesus Christ. And that restoration of God is a costly one. It demanded everything from Jesus. It's a powerful restoration where he even uses your scars to enhance the restoration. And it's a lavish restoration that is above and beyond. It is abundant. So lavish that you and I can't even imagine what it will be like in the new heavens and the new earth when God brings full restoration to our bodies, to his church, and to this world. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who are deeply in need of being restored. There are stories in this room and there are scars from the past that are deep. And yet, Jesus, when you left the glories and the comfort of heaven to enter this dark, broken world and to embrace the discomfort, you did it with a single purpose in mind. And that was to restore us to fullness, and to flourishing. And that, Father, you use everything. You garner all of this world, even sin and brokenness and the forces of evil to accomplish your salvation. You did it with Jesus on the cross, and now through Christ, you do it in our lives. So that those of us maybe who are sitting here hurting deeply over something that has happened recently or in the past, still dealing with the scars, that we can be assured that in Christ, all of that and all that will come is being used by you, God, to make us new. Father, would we find great hope in that? And would we sing now as we close with hearts that are restored, with hearts that are renewed, with hearts that have been given hope by you through your spirit. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.